0: Smells jesus And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. God spoken in many ways. Welcome to Smells Jesus-y, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Today, we're continuing our series, The Gospel According to Moses. Today, Matt Waldron will be speaking to us from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, Gospel Journey. Here's Matt. All right. Uh, well, I'd love to hear your suggestions over morning tea. Uh, it seems to me that if you watch any reality television—I'm not saying you should—but if you do, uh, everyone's on a journey. If it's some kind of uh, cooking competition, then they'll talk about their name of the cooking competition journey. I'm deliberately not naming any names. Uh, if uh, if it's a you know some kind of fitness uh, or weight loss kind of reality TV show, then they'll talk about their their weight loss journey. Um, any any of those shows everyone's on a journey and uh, that's okay uh, but it'd be great to know what kind of journey we want to be on what kind of journey we should be on what kind of journey God takes us on in following Jesus so today we're going to be looking at the book of Numbers which I think is about the gospel journey and I want to try and uh, persuade you of that and so you show you uh where jesus is leading you and how you can have a sense of progress so firstly where does number fit numbers fit in the rest of the bible so a couple of weeks ago we looked at exodus and we saw that the first half of exodus was about freedom from slavery to pharaoh god took the israelites out of slavery in egypt and then the second half of the book was about freedom to serve yahweh they were brought to worship god at mount sinai And then the kind of traveling worship was established with the tabernacle, the instructions for the tabernacle and that being built. And at the end of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, verse 17, it says, So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. So first day of the first month. In the, so the first day of the second year they'd been out of egypt for a year okay then we have the book of leviticus which uh gives more detail about relating to god through worship through the tabernacle so all the instructions for uh, participating in the covenant worship at the tabernacle and what that means for the rest of life Uh, their ritual holiness, their moral holiness and how they treat each other and we summarise that as salvation, celebration and imitation. That's the shape of the relationship we have with God in Jesus in fulfilment of the relationship described in Leviticus. And so then Numbers starts, Numbers chapter 1 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Okay? So, really you just need to see that. uh, Numbers fits kind of straight after Exodus in terms of the story and Leviticus is a big bunch of information in between but it's only a month later in the story. So, that's where we're going. How Numbers works, uh, Numbers has two big strands twisted together to make the book of Numbers, okay? So, like, I don't know if any ropes are only made with two strands, but imagine this rope's made with only two strands, uh, twisted together to make the, the whole thing. That's how the book of Numbers works, there's two big strands. So, there's the story and then there's the commands. So, the story is, it, uh, the, the book of Numbers tells the story Gosh, I can't read that. I'll look on this screen. Okay, excellent. Uh, the book of Numbers tells the story of Israel travelling through the wilderness to the promised land. Right, So they're starting at Sinai and they're travelling through the wilderness to the promised land. The book of Numbers tells that story. But at the same time, it has these uh, commands. It teaches God's commands for living as God's people in the promised land. Now, obviously, those commands have relevance to them as they're on the way, so the commands... Uh, you know, about keeping the Sabbath. They're supposed to keep that command on the way. But the way the commands are phrased uh, are repeatedly described as do this when you're in the land. Yep. And some of the commands they can't really keep until they get into the land. So you've got the story of them travelling through the wilderness to the promised land, and at the same time embedded in that, you've got uh, God's commands for living as God's people in the promised land. So, let me just give you a couple of quick examples. Did I do a slide for this? I'll have to give you more detail so we can see how that works. So, here is a bit more of the story and then we'll look at a bit more of the commands and see some examples of how they fit. So, uh, here is the, the story of the book of Numbers in two minutes or how long it takes. So, chapters 1 to 4, God's people were counted at Sinai. Uh, there's some details of how they're counted. That's why it takes four chapters. Then chapters 7 to 9... God's glory was with the people at Sinai, uh, represented by the cloud, and then at night uh, that was represented by fire, and my microphone's drooping. Okie dokie. Then, chapters 10 to 12, God leads the complaining people to Paran. And so, uh, uh, you know, they're complaining about this whole situation. And uh, God disciplines them, but he gets them along to Paran, which is on the kind of borders of the promised land. So then the next section happens in Paran. Uh, Chapters 13 to 14, most of the people reject God's promise of the land. So uh, God tells Moses to select 12 uh, representatives from the 12 tribes, basically spies, one from each tribe, and sends them to explore the land, and, uh, you know, get a heads up on what they're heading into. And the the spies come back and 10 of them say, look, the land's great, but the people are really big and scary and the cities are well fortified. There's no way we can invade this land. But two of the spies, uh, Joshua and Caleb, say, the land's fantastic, just like God promised, so he'll give it to us just like he promised. Well, the people are so upset by that idea that they just about stone Joshua and Caleb for trusting God and they want to elect leaders to go uh, back to Egypt where they were slaves and uh, so this is very offensive that they're rejecting God's promise to them and so uh, God punishes them by giving them uh, what they, they think they want. So he says, you're worried that you're going to die? Fine, we can wait around for you to die. You're worried your children will be taken as slaves? Well, we'll wait around for your children to grow up and then I'll give them the land since you don't want it. Uh, and then also in that, uh, while they're there, uh, some of the people, uh, they can't get away with rejecting God's promise. They try to reject the leaders that God has appointed. They re- Some of the people reject God's priesthood. And similarly, uh, God stands his ground and says he knows what he's doing and punishes those who are leading that rebellion and puts it down. So we've had uh, what's happened at Sinai, we've had travel to Paran and then we've had what's happened in Paran and what's happened in Paran is the people have rejected God's promise. So now instead of going into the promised land as planned, they're now going to wander around in the wilderness for another 39 years. So uh, this leads to a kind of travel montage, if you like, so, we don't get 39 years of chronicles. We just get uh, this kind of travel montage, God leading the complaining people to Moab, which is uh, another kind of area near the Promised Land. So, they've kind of been off and wandered and they've, they've come back. And uh, then we have this chapters 22 to 27. The next generation uh, were protected, purified and counted. So, we get this uh, uh, story uh, where uh, the local uh, king... Uh, hires a a, a kind of prophet guru guy to come and curse uh, Israel because he feels threatened by them being in his territory. Uh, But uh, Balaam, his name is, says he can only do what uh, God uh, tells him and God tells him to bless Israel. So he blesses Israel, which upsets um, uh, the king of Moab. And the king of Moab keeps trying to manipulate God by moving to different locations and offering different sacrifices, but you can't manipulate God, as the Israelites have been finding throughout the story. So God protects this next generation of his people. Uh, He also purifies them, uh, just like their forefathers, a a bunch of the the people uh, uh, rebel against God. And actually uh, engage in idolatry and sexual immorality with the local people of Moab, so a bunch of them uh, uh, get sick as, as a punishment. God kills them through disease, uh, and uh, and other there are leaders who who separate the people and uh, punish the people, and then finally the, the this new generation is counted. And so you remember there was a the people were counted at the start of the book. And now the next generation is counted, so that's why uh, in English the book is referred to as Numbers, because there's all this counting going on. And then chapters 31 to 33, you have the conquest and settlement kind of start early before they go over Jordan into the official promised land. Uh, God enables them to uh, conquer a local people and take uh, some of some, some local land, uh, what's normally called the Trans Jordan area, which once you're over the Jordan. Looking back, this part is over the Jordan, Transjordan. And uh, they get to uh, make plans for settling the rest of the land. And then the final uh, chapter, chapter 36, has daughters marry their cousins because who doesn't like a happy ending? So, uh, that's a good place. Sorry, that was a joke and no one laughed. So now it sounds like I'm suggesting you marry your cousins, which I'm not. Okay. So, uh, that, that last story, though, is a good place to see where the commands for living in the promised land uh, intersect with the story. So, uh, in chapter uh, 34 and 35... Oh, here we go. So, now I've got to go to my next slide with what the commands are. So, chapters 34 to 35 are about apportioning the promised land as God directed. So, God says, this tribe gets this land, this tribe gets, you know, between these boundaries. It's about apportioning the promised land as God's directed... And then the story of Zelophehad's daughters is uh, a a case study of how to make sure, as they live in the land, that they keep preserving the apportioning that God has given. So Zelophehad has no sons. He's now died. Zelophehad's daughters have no brothers. And uh, normally, the inheritance was passed on through the sons. But what if you have no sons? (coughs) And so... Uh, They've already discussed the fact that in that case, well, the land still needs to be passed on through the family line. There still needs to be inheritance. There's nothing wrong with having daughters inherit land. You just need to have a system so that it's fair for everybody. And so what they say is uh, the daughters can inherit the land, uh, but then the leaders of the tribe say, but if they go and marry men from outside our tribe, uh, then the land that's been apportioned to our tribe will get divided up. And we've just been learning in chapters 30 40, 35 about apportioning the promised land the way that God directed. Uh, so they decide, okay, uh, when there is a woman who's inheriting because she's got no brothers, she has to marry within her tribe so that the inheritance stayed within the tribe so that, as the commands say, the promised land keeps being apportioned the way God directed. Okay, so that's probably a really unnecessarily detailed and uninteresting example but it's one where you can see the commands that are put in there about how to live in the Promised Land uh, connect with the story. So let's go through them from the start. So chapters 5 to 6 are about purifying yourselves as God's people. There are commands for uh, ritual, ceremonial holiness, commands for moral holiness, uh, because they've just been counted as God's people and we have the story about to be told of God's glory being with the people. So if God is with his people... The the people need to purify themselves in response to that. Uh, Then chapter 15, while they're in Paran, there are some commands about everyone participating in obeying God. This comes straight after the story where the majority of the population reject God's promise of the land. The majority of the population reject God's promise of the land and so that means that whole generation misses out and so that's followed by some commands. When you're in the promised land... Make sure this never happens again. Make sure you all participate in obeying God. And so there are some detailed examples of how that would work. Then chapters 18 to 19, which is at the end of the Paran section, just before the travel montage, you have commands that the priests take responsibility for the sanctuary, chapters 18 to 19. So that, pretty much that phrase is there uh, at the start of chapter Numbers chapter 18. numbers chapter 18 verse 1 the Lord said to Aaron you your sons and your family are to bear the responsibility for offenses connected with the sanctuary and you and your sons alone are to bear the responsibility for offenses connected with the priesthood and then it goes on to give you know more detailed uh, explanation of that Uh, why is that stuck in there well just before that remember in Paran is the story where some of the people reject the priesthood that God has appointed and God defends them and vindicates. He says, "No, no, I've appointed Aaron's family and his descendants to be the priests." And then you have instructions about those priests need to take responsibility for the job God's given them. Yeah. Uh, the second half of that, chapter 19, is about the water for cleansing, which the priests uh, were to use in those ceremonies. And one of the, uh, pretty much the first story that happens uh, in the next tr- in the travel montage, is about the people complaining they've got no water. And God tells Moses to speak to a rock and God will make water come out to provide for the people and Moses doesn't follow God's instructions. He strikes the rock with the staff. And so God says, who do you think you are, Moses? (laughs) Uh, And so uh, as a consequence, Moses, like the rest of his generation, is not going to enter the promised land. And so... uh, I think that's a, that's a good concrete example where you can see this ceremony that they're going to practice in the promised land about the water for cleansing, they're given those instructions in a story about God providing water and a leader being presumptuous in the way they're leading. So everybody knows when they're doing these ceremonies in the promised land, they remember this story of travelling through the wilderness and, uh, you know, the priests, the leaders are not above reproach, they're answerable to God as well, and the water of cleansing is provided by God, just like water was provided miraculously for the people to drink. Uh, So the priests take responsibility for the sanctuary, chapters 18 to 19, then chapters 28 to 30, while they're in Moab, there are these instructions about taking responsibility for offerings with your family, and then the, the last one I mentioned before, chapters 34 to 35, about apportioning the promised land as directed. Now, sorry if that was slightly tedious. Uh, I don't have any kind of uh, simple systematic summary of that, apart from I want you to see that these two strands are supposed to go together. Right? There's the story of the travel through the wilderness to the promised land, and then there are instructions for being God's people in the promised land that are put in at key points in places where when you read it, you kind of go, oh yeah, that, that fits there. So that when you're doing those commands, you think about them in relation to these stories. So why is the book of Numbers written like that? Right, it describes the journey through the wilderness in order to teach the journey of life. When the Israelites were living as God's people in the, in the promised land, and they were obeying these commands and doing the ceremonies and participating in the tabernacle worship... And and doing all these things that God had taught them, they were supposed to be thinking about how that was like, the journey through the wilderness. So, the wilderness journey is described in order to teach them how to think about their journey through life. So, what does Numbers teach about the journey through life? Following Jesus is a journey of learning to love God's glory. Following Jesus is a journey of learning to love God's glory. So just some uh, definitions. Uh, God's glory is the display or honour of his holiness or greatness. So the basic definition of glory is uh, the display of greatness, the display of majesty. Uh, If you have uh, a king and he wants to build an impressive... uh, What do kings live in? Castles? Yeah, okay, let's go with castle. Palace, that's the word I'm looking for. He has an impressive palace, right? He builds an impressive palace to show that he's a great king. He wants the palace to be part of his glory, right? The display of his greatness. That's the basic definition of glory. So God's glory is the display or honour of his holiness or greatness. And I want to suggest to you, uh, although this is a thread going through the whole of the Pentateuch, I think it uh, comes to the fore and is emphasised In the book of numbers i think that's what's happening as they progress through their journey god is teaching them to love his glory so let me try and show you that briefly in the remainder of our morning so uh we're gonna i've got a a bunch of little examples which hopefully will show that this is in the bible and not just something i'm making up uh we're all going to be in the book of numbers so this would be a good time to follow along in your own bible though if you want to just listen that's fine as well so Uh, Numbers chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. This is where the people are being counted at Sinai. And here's one of the examples of why one of the bits of counting happens. So Numbers 3, verses 12 to 13. This is God speaking. I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether human or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. So basically the argument here is, when God rescued the people from slavery in Egypt, remember the final thing that he did to make Pharaoh let them go, was he pronounced this this curse, where every firstborn uh, in the, the whole land of Egypt, firstborn person, firstborn animal, Uh, died overnight but it didn't happen to the Israelites and the symbol that God gave them was the Passover where they was to kill a lamb and the lamb died symbolically instead of the firstborn child and they painted the blood over the doorpost so that the angel would know to pass them over that's the symbolism Uh, and so God's saying well it's not that you were less sinful than the Egyptians it's just that I was forgiving Uh, and so uh, by forgiving you in that way I now, every firstborn belongs to me. And so uh, w- one symbol of that was setting apart the Levites, uh, one tribe of Israel, to be especially for God's service in taking care of the tabernacle and those kinds of things. So this, this kind of central part of w- when they're counting the Israel, when, when they're taking a census, they have to count the Levites separately because they don't count as part of the military they don't count of the, as part of the general population they're a special part of the population that belongs to god specially to remind them of how he rescued them out of egypt his power in that his forgiveness in that and so here here is something that was built into the population how they thought of themselves as a nation that was supposed to remind them of god's power and forgiveness in saving them which is a very roundabout way of saying this was supposed to be part of god's glory in a simple boring administrative thing like counting the population okay let's get on to some clearer slightly more exciting examples so chapter 9 uh, verse 1 is where it, it it says god's glory is appearing to them so chapter 9 verse 1 just gives us a time the lord spoke to moses in the desert of sinai in the first month of the second year after they came out of egypt so quick note for those of you paying attention The first verse of Numbers starts at the start of the second month. Here at chapter 9, we have, what do you call it, a little time cut back a a couple of weeks, okay? Because this story has actually been told at the end of the book of Exodus and again in the book of Leviticus, and now we're getting a different summary of the same thing where the tabernacle is set up and God's glory appears as a cloud and then a fire. So let me read you that from chapter 9, verses 15 to 23. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, Right, so that's the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 9 of Leviticus, right? On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, can you guess what happened? The Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning. And when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whenever the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped. And at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. Now, I realize that gets a bit long and tedious and pedestrian, but do you see what it's talking about? It's talking about God visibly showing himself. God visibly, like, appearing. I mean, it's not, it's not him. It's, it's his, He's presenting himself through a cloud or a fire, depending on whether it's day or night. And he's doing that consistently with the people for 40 years. Right? And, and the way they, when they get up in the morning, the way they know whether they're packing up and moving on or whether they're staying is whether God looks settled for the day right it sounds very pedestrian but it's an incredibly big deal right they had God's glory God showing himself that he was with them in the middle of the camp every day and night for 40 years So we mustn't forget that as we read through the rest of the story that that's what was going on god was visually showing himself to be with them Uh, but despite that when we get to paran on the outskirts of the promised land just ready to go in most of the people reject god's promise of the land and so look at how god describes that in numbers 14. numbers 14. Uh, when the people are you know wanting to reject this and talking about executing uh joshua and caleb 14 verse 10 but the whole assembly talked about stoning them then the glory of the lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the israelites the lord said to moses how long will these people treat me with contempt right so you know god who's with them when he sees this trouble going, of the, you know, the, the majority of the population are going, we shouldn't trust God's word. God says, <coughs> excuse me! Like, he's right there! And so look at verses 20 to 23. Uh, after Moses intercedes for them, uh, God agrees to forgive them and not just kill them on the spot. But there's still going to need to be some discipline. So verse 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it see what's what's the problem they've seen god's glory they've seen god with them displaying himself as being with them through the cloud and the fire they've seen god's glory in rescuing them out of slavery right acting powerfully clearly showing that he's in control and using that to rescue them they've seen all that they've seen god's glory and it hasn't made a difference that's what he means when he says they've treated me with contempt. Right? They've seen his glory more clearly, arguably, than anyone in history up to this time and they still do trust God. And so God says we can't have that. They can't inherit the blessings of the promised land on that basis. So back in verses uh, 15 to 18... Notice also uh, the way Moses interceded for the people before God made this pronouncement of forgiveness. Moses is talking to God. He says, If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now, now, may the lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared the lord is slow to anger abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion that's what god how god described himself when he appeared to moses and declared his name this is who i am god said yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation in accordance with your great love forgive the sin of these people right so so Moses is saying to God why should you forgive these people because that's what you're like and because you want to show what you're like show your power in being able to bring them into the promised land and show your forgiveness your great mercy your wonderfulness as a king right show your show what you're like this will be for your glory for your honor And then similarly, when some of the people reject uh, God's priesthood in the next section in Paran, it is God's honour, God's glory that's at stake. So look at chapter 16, verse 19. Uh, So Moses is speaking to Korah. He was one of the, the leaders of the rebellion against the priests. Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they And Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each of them took his censers, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. Just to uh, remind you, uh, in the book of Leviticus, when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were legitimately priests, came and offered uh, censers full of incense on fire to God that God had not told them to do. They just thought it would be cool to have extra sacrifices because they were on a roll or something. God killed them. Like struck them down immediately with the fire of His presence. No, no, no. The priests don't get to make up how to have a relationship with me. And here are some uh, people who are not designated by pr- as priests by God, who are saying the priests shouldn't be so so special. We should. Be, everyone should be able to take turns. Is kind of what they're saying. And God tells them, bring your senses. And let's see what happens. I can't believe any of them turned up, given what happened to Nadab and Abihu. Like, what are they doing? Right, they've seen God's glory and they're treating it with contempt. They don't appreciate it. They don't get the significance of it. And so down, chapter 16, verse 42. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord said to Moses get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once and they fell face down then Moses said to Aaron take your censer and put incense in it along with burning coals from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them wrath has come out from the Lord the plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague, in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, for the plague had stopped. So you get this kind of pattern through the book of uh, Numbers where the people don't take god's presence god's glory seriously they don't trust him they don't obey him and so then god's glory doesn't go away god's glory turns up and has to judge them discipline the people punish the ringleaders there there are different details in different stories but that's the kind of story again and again one of the ones where it works a bit differently was our bible reading from before the the kind of weird story about the bronze snake the people are grumbling again not trusting god to provide food for them god sends poisonous snakes to 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 bite them and so people start dying and so he tells moses to make a bronze replica of the snake and put it up on a pole so anyone who looks at the bronze snake sorry sorry, anyone who's bitten by a snake can look at the bronze replica and not die Uh, why do that because it's a way of recognizing that you know that what they're experiencing the, the the snake bites is god's punishment on them they're kind of accepting that that's what that's the interpretation so now i'm going to accept god's solution it's a way of teaching them that it is god's power at work among them it is god who's with them It is it is god's greatness and holiness that is being displayed it's teaching them god's glory okay so chapter uh, 20 uh, verse 6 and 12 this is the story where they're, they're in the travel montage uh, for 40 years before they get back to Moab and, or back to the border of the Promised Land in Moab this time. And this is the story of Moses' failure. And look how it's described. Chapter 20, verse 6. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell fast down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water you will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink that's what they're complaining about so down verse 12 uh, but the Lord oh sorry i should just read what happened shouldn't i verse 9 so moses took the staff from the lord's presence just as he had commanded them he and aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and moses said to them listen you rebels must we bring you water out of this rock then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. All right, do, you, do you see the logic? because you did not trust in me enough to honour me as holy in the sight of the people. And so then, uh, last example or two, uh, in the section in uh, Moab, where the next generation are protected, purified and counted, chapter 25, verses 6 to 13. So this is where uh, the people have started to uh, get too cosy with the Moabites and engage in sexual immorality and idolatry. And so uh, God brings uh, punishment on them. And chapter 25, verses 6 to 13, "Uh, Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman, so she's from Moab, right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So they've realised nationally they've got a problem. They're saying, we've got to stop doing this. God's punishing us. And right in the midst of that, uh, there's an Israelite guy turns up with a Midianite woman who's not his wife and he's taking her to his tent. That's what's going on. Verse 7. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. So that's pretty full on. Uh, when, when people think of the duties of priests, that's not normally what they think of, but there you go. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, since he was as zealous for my honour among them as I am. I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Notice the logic again. Since he was as zealous for my honour among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. That, that gives you a whole bunch of explanation of what's been going throughout the book of Numbers. The people are holding uh, God and his glory in contempt, but God is zealous, you know, rightly enthusiastic, committed, to his glory, to showing people what he's truly like, his greatness being displayed. And so he has to punish to show his glory, to show his power, to show his faithfulness, to show what he's really like. He has to punish people who rebel against him and treat him with contempt. And uh, here is someone, Phinehas gets it. Because Phinehas uh, responds with the appropriate amount of enthusiasm and commitment, the appropriate amount of zeal to restore God's honour, God no longer has to mete out the punishment to restore his honour. And finally, chapter 26, uh, verse... Oh, I've already mentioned chapter 26, verse 51, is where uh, you have the, the total of the, the second count of the next generation. Did I mention the numbers are the same? I don't think I've said that yet. I'll say it now. Uh, the pe- people are counted at the start of the book of Numbers. And uh, let me see. Chapter 1, verses 45 to 46. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. So that's the, the kind of first generation that escapes from Egypt. That's their uh, all the men. 20 years and older, not including Levites, so it's basically the army. Uh, Then chapter 26, verse 51, the total number of the men of Israel, so it's the same system, was 601,730. So they've lost about 2,200, which as a proportion is pretty small. So, you know, God has brought the nation out of Egypt. They've refused to trust his promise of the land so he's led them around the wilderness for 40 years and now the next generation, the children, the babies that were born on the way, the people who didn't see what God in, did in Egypt but have just heard about it from their parents, the ones who didn't see God's glory and hold it in re- contempt but have grown up with it, their are poised, ready to inherit the promised land and there's about the same number. In other words, God is fulfilling his promise to bring the nation of Israel into the promised land. It's just that the individual Israelites, whether or not they get to participate in that, depends on whether they trust God, how they respond to God's glory. Okay, uh, that's enough of that. We could do more of that, but let's, let's stop there. I hope you can see that God's presence, guidance, provision, protection, promises and blessings are not just nice things to have. They show what God himself is like. They're, They're displays of his character, of his greatness, of his holiness. They are his glory. And so the people are supposed to respond to that by, well, loving God. Look at Numbers 15, verses 37 to 41. Uh, this is in one of the uh, sets of commands about how to live as god's people in the promised land Uh, a potentially this might seem like a very trivial kind of example but this is one of the few places in the commands where the logic is explained so numbers 15 from verse 37 the lord said to moses speak to the israelites and say to them throughout the generations to come you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Why do they need to obey God's commands? Well, this particular command about having the tassels is just a memory aid to help them obey all the rest of the commands why do they need to obey all those commands that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes they can't just live for what their desires are what they see and they think that looks good I want some of that god promises them all those things i mean the promised land is promised as a land flowing with milk and honey the spies go and check it out and it's amazing and it is what their eyes want it is what their desires will be satisfied by but to only want god for his blessings how is it described here do not prostitute yourselves To only want God for what he gives uh, The Bible describes it as just despicable Instead of loving God himself And similarly As people who trust in Jesus We want to keep making progress In loving God uh, In Luke chapter 9 Verses 20 to 24 Jesus puts it like this Uh, he's just asked his disciples uh, who the crowd say he is, and they list a bunch of options, and he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. The, the desires that we have, the things that look good, they're not what life's about. They're, they're good things and God is pleased to give them. But Jesus tells us if we want to follow him, every day we need to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and look to having a relationship with God because God is great, because God is worth having a relationship with, not just because of the stuff he can give us. In other words, we're not going to make any progress unless we are learning to love God's glory. How can you know if you're making progress in this life? How can you know if you're making progress in following Jesus? If you are learning to love God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are so fantastic. You are so steadfast and reliable so loving despite us doing so many things that make us unworthy of your love so kind and forgiving so powerful and generous father please teach us to appreciate you as you are help us uh, not just to enjoy your good gifts and, and blessings but to appreciate you. Help us to learn to love your honour. Help us to learn to love you displaying your greatness even when it's in punishment or discipline. Father, uh, please help us to keep going every day of reminding ourselves that our desires the things that we see that are good are not what life's about and please grow us in loving your glory day by day we pray in jesus name amen